So today we're talking about, as I've mentioned, the death of Christ. And you may be wondering, what are they going to say about the death of Christ? What's Tim going to talk about for the next hour? Is this going to be like an hour-long gospel presentation? Or what are we actually going to talk about? We hear about the death of Christ every single Easter. Uh, and we're pretty well inundated with the death of Christ in our normal Christian daily life. It, pretty much every Sunday we're going to sing a song that mentions something about us being washed by his blood. Or uh, today, I think, even. We're, well, yeah. We're always singing songs about the death of Christ. There's crosses everywhere. There's always these crosses just reminding you of the death of Christ. Some of you have cross jewelry. You're wearing a bracelet with a cross on it. Some of you have like a cross tattoo. I met a guy once that had a cross tattooed on his face. So you're not serious about the death of Christ until you have the cross tattooed on your face. It was crazy. I wouldn't suggest that. Uh, but we're just, we're very familiar with the death of Christ. But we need to be careful that our familiarity doesn't lead us to apathy. When I was, uh, when Kelsey and I first joined Parkway, uh, we lived in Coppell. If you don't know where Coppell is, it's way down 121 tolls. So if there's any construction on 121 right now, I paid for it. I guarantee it. Uh, Coppell is this little city that's directly north of DFW Airport. And we had this cute little house that was right, right near the downtown in Coppell. It's real nice. Uh, it was a real quiet, old, established neighborhood. We loved our little house until, like, hours after we moved in, we hear this crazy rumbling out of nowhere. <laughs> the wind windows are vibrating, and there's this plane, like, 900 feet above us. And we were in one of the main flight paths for planes coming into land at DFW. DFW is one of the busiest airports in the world, and so about... Every two minutes during peak times, there's a plane flying over you. And it was loud. If you didn't expect it, it was scary. It was crazy. And you always, it did give me comfort because I thought, there are a lot of planes that don't crash. Because our entire time living where we never saw any planes crash. But people would come over for dinner and they're like, how do y'all get used to that? And for a long time, I thought, I'm never going to get used to it. But guess what? I did. It was so frequent. Planes came over so often every two minutes that I was like, I didn't even hear it. It's like people that live next to a train or something. So I got completely used to it, and I forgot that they were, I didn't even hear them anymore. That was until we had a newborn baby who's trying to sleep in the middle of the day. Then I did not want those planes. I definitely noticed them after that. If the FBI was listening to me through my iPhone, they're probably putting me on a watch list because of the things I said to the planes. It was nothing obscene, but I, I didn't want them to be in the sky anymore because I wanted my son to stay asleep. But guess what? He got used to it too. They were so frequent that eventually Haddon just got used to it and would sleep right through them. Uh, so I say all of that. It, frequently we talk about the death of Christ. We frequently talk about the death of Christ in church, in songs, in, in our general Christian culture. And we have a tendency, because it's so frequent, to kind of just uh, tune it out. Anytime the topic comes up, we just kind of tune it out when Easter comes around. We, we try to conjure up some feelings, but really what we're doing is we're just kind of nodding along. Yes, I've heard about this. Yes, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I, I know this story. I get it. And we just kind of tune it out. But this shouldn't be. We will we'll never exhaust our need to think on, dwell on, remember the death of Christ. Christ's death is absolutely crucial to understanding your justification, yes, but also your doxology or your worship of God, your, your sanctification, your relationship to others, the list goes on. The death of Christ is absolutely crucial. This is why New Testament authors explicitly mention Christ's death 175 times. It seems to be extremely important. A few people in church history 
talk about the creationism, traducianism debate of the origin of the soul, but everybody talks about the death of Christ frequently. Everybody talks about the death of Christ. So it's so frequent throughout the Bible, not even mentioning the Old Testament prophecies looking forward to it. It's so frequent in the New Testament. It's so frequent in church history, and it's so frequent in our, our general culture here at Parkway. It shouldn't be something that we tune out. Rather, it should be something that we see as extremely important. If this topic comes up so frequently, it must be important. So it demands our attention. So today, if you look at your, seat, your sheet, if you got a handout when you walked in, if you didn't, they're right there on this back table. Um, we're going to walk through four propositions, just like we did last week with uh, the life of Christ. I want to talk about uh, kind of the aspects of Christ's death that we often overlook. So I'm not just going to read uh, the story from the Gospels of Christ's trial and his suffering and his crucifixion, crucifixion and his burial, because I think that's something that we all, we all know pretty well. We're all well inundated with. I, I kind of want to talk about all of the aspects of Christ's death that sometimes we, we overlook. So proposition one, Christ must die to forgive sinners. Proposition two, Christ's death provides complete atonement. Proposition three, Christ's death displays the character of God and invites us to do likewise. And proposition four, we are united with Christ in his death. So that's it. That's what we're going to talk about today. So I hope y'all are ready because we're about to engage in a fun participatory activity to start us off. Uh, so let's go to proposition one. Jesus must die to pay the penalty for sin. Why? Why? Why does Jesus have to die to pay this, this penalty for sin? Why didn't God just forgive humanity? Why does somebody have to die? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get into groups of three, uh, more than two. So if you're that introverted couple, it's the worst day of your life. It'll be okay, though. Just add one person. That's all you got to do. But don't worry. I'm not going to have you stand up and, and say your answer to everybody. I just want you all to quickly get into groups of three. We'll just do this for like a minute and 16 seconds. And answer this question. This is the question I want you to answer. Why did Jesus have to die? Why didn't God just forgive humanity? That's two questions, but they're one and the same. Why did Jesus have to die to redeem sinners? Why didn't God just forgive humanity? Go. All righty. I think we, a lot of good discussion. Well done. Everybody avert your attention back up here. And let's talk about this question. Let's answer this question. Why did Jesus have to die? Why didn't God just forgive humanity? Now, I'm going to discuss, I'm going to just talk for us, so I'm not going to have y'all give your answer. I just wanted to get your brain moving. Well, I don't want your brain moving. That's like a, I think that's a concussion. So I just want, I want your minds to be moving, okay? So first, we need to recognize, when we ask the question, why didn't God just forgive humanity? We need to recognize that there's no such thing as just forgiving. That does not exist. That is outside of the scope of reality, just forgiving. This idea that we tend to have of someone just forgiving a trespass. Because if a wrong has occurred and there are certain repercussions for that wrong, somebody has to endure those repercussions. Either the person that committed the wrong or the person that forgives the person that committed the wrong. So if there is a trespass, there are repercussions for it. And either the trespasser 
or the trespassed against will end up paying the penalty of those repercussions. So let's just take a hypothetical situation. This is completely hypothetical. Say there was, a, I don't know, a group of pastors that was always making jokes in their sermons uh, at my expense, okay? <laughs> talking about uh, the car I drive, talking about the pants I wear, how short I am. Hypothetical. Probably out of jealousy, okay? They, they wish their Hondas could get that kind of gas mileage. I don't know. But for some reason, they make all of these jokes, and there's this, there's this trespass committed against me, this evil transgression committed against me, right? I can just forgive them, but what am I doing when I do that? I am then accepting, as I walk out of the, I've had an encouraging time, and people have been, I heard this great sermon, even though jokes were made in my expense, I walk out into the foyer, and people have more Prius jokes for me. I have to endure more jokes from the congregation. I have to endure the repercussions of their sin. I forgive them, but I still end up having to deal with all the repercussions. Do you see that? I can forgive all day long, but there's still this, these effects. There's still this repercussion from the sin. And either the one who has committed the sin deals with it or the person who forgives deals with it. So... Romans 6.23, we all know this. It says, for the wages of sin is death. So the wages of sin is death, and so the burden of humanity's sin, both individual and corporate, against God is death. That's the repercussion, death. So if you can remember, we've talked about this in great detail, so I don't need to, but uh, in the beginning, God created this, this perfect world. Everything's perfectly submitted to his rule and reign. There's no opposition to God's rule and reign, if you can even imagine a universe like that. But then he puts in the middle of this garden that displays his glory, he puts his very image and says, exercise dominion over, over my creation. As you exercise dominion, submit to me and display to the world what my dominion looks like. That's what God places man in the garden to do. And, but then, as Zach talked about last week, Adam ends up submitting to a creature, submitting to the creation he's supposed to practice dominion over, and then rather than submitting to God, he attempts to exercise dominion over God. The created order is reversed, and this great sin, brokenness, enters the world. I like Jeff's analogy last week, like The Lion King, because that was one of my favorite films growing up. That kind of ages me. When Mufasa is king, birds are all flying in formation. Everything's green. There's like these hippos doing synchronized swimming. I want more of that. That's probably what it was like. Everything works in harmony. But as soon as Scar kills Mufasa, spoiler alert, and Scar is in charge, everything's broken. There's corruption. Even the sky looks different. Everything's dying. Things are withering away. In the same way, with man's sin, with man's corruption, Sin enters the world, and there's this brokenness. There are these repercussions for sin. And ultimately, the wages of sin is death, and that spreads to everything. So sin's repercussions are this, this curse, suffering, death, and someone has to bear that burden. Either you need to bear the burden and suffer death, or someone else needs to bear it in order to forgive you and give you life. Someone has to bear the burden. So there's no such thing as just forgiving humanity. But you may say, well, Tim, wait out. God is omnipotent, right? And you're saying he can't just do something. God can do whatever he wants. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. You can't, don't limit God by saying he can't just forgive sin. But let's, 
let me ask you this. Can God do evil? That's a question. That's, can God do evil? No, he cannot do evil. Can God tempt you? No. Can God break a promise? Can God do anything unjust? Okay, so, so there are things that God cannot do. Why? Because he's limited by his own nature. And he is a just God who does justly. His omnipotence is oriented around his character. So the reality of his nature is why he can't just forgive humanity. So it's kind of, this is kind of the same question when people say, why couldn't God just forgive humanity? It's kind of like asking, why doesn't God, could God build a rock so heavy he can't lift it? Or can God make a square circle? This is just a weird logical question that's, that's actually illogical and outside the concept of reality. God is just, he only does what he wants, and therefore he can only do justly. Because God only does what he wants, and all he wants is justice. So all of this to say, God can't just forgive humanity. The repercussions have to be paid. And what we're arguing, what I'm arguing, is Christ is the one that pays them. This is why Jesus had to die. There's repercussions, they have to be paid, and Christ is the one who pays them. And that is why Christ died. Let me give you some passages. These are in your notes. Hebrews 9:22b, which is just a fancy way of saying I'm not reading the whole verse, uh, but I'm not cutting anything sketchy out. Don't worry. Simply says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So how do you forgive sins? What has to happen? Yes, blood has to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, is there forgiveness of sins? God can't just forgive humanity. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, being Christ, we have redemption through his blood, which was shed, obviously, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So by Christ's blood, God forgives sinners. God is just to shed the blood of his sons to forgive his enemies. And that's how forgiveness works. And this was the only way that mankind could have been forgiven. How do we know that? Because that's the way that God chose to do it. So this forgiveness of mankind, as we talk about this, it, it brings up a word. I should have written this down, but it's in your notes, atonement. This brings up this idea of atonement. We need to talk about this before we go any further. Atonement, defined, refers to the reconciliation or restoration of relationship between God and sinners. So the relationship's broken by Adam in the fall, and atonement happens when that relationship is reconciled completely or in, or in some form. So that leads us to Proposition 2. Jesus must die to provide complete atonement. Proposition 2. Jesus must die to provide complete, total, whole, full uh, atonement. So I want to talk as briefly as possible about uh, atonement offered prior to Christ, but prior to his death, and how Christ offers a greater atonement in his death. That's what we're going to talk about. So, shortly after Adam's sin in the Old Testament, there's this pattern of sacrifices prescribed by God, all aimed at the idea of atonement, restoring this relationship, or, or forgiving the people's sins, or cleansing and purifying the people. In fact, there's this one sacrifice in particular that is all about atonement, and that sacrifice is made on the day of atonement. In the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, this great day in, in, in Israel. 
So here's what would happen. Basically, a priest would, uh, he would make all these sacrifices. He's like killing bulls and rams. He's sprinkling their blood everywhere, which is, when you read this outside of uh, the context, you're like, what is happening here? This is crazy. He's sprinkling blood, which is meant to be a symbol for life. If I was drained of all my blood, would I be alive? No. Okay, so that's how they view blood. Blood is this life force of, of the animal. So he's sprinkling life where death covers the world. So the priest is going around cleansing the temple. He's cleansing the people by sprinkling blood everywhere. And that, gives, that covers over death with life. It's this idea of atonement. And here comes this, this crazy part that we hear about all the time in the Gospels and is very significant to what we're talking about today, the death of Christ. Leviticus 16, uh, starting in 21. And Aaron, who's this high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. He takes this live, living goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, meaning all the sins, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, whatever that means. I don't know. We don't have time. The goat shall bear all of their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Okay, so imagine this. This priest comes by and just lays his hand on, the, on this goat. He says, all the guilt of Israel, all of, the, all of their sins, all their iniquities, and then he gets led out the city gate off into the wilderness where it will surely die. And so the, the sin is being cleansed from Israel as it leaves. All of their sin is on that goat. And they say, bye-bye, sin. And it walks away, and it gets killed in the wilderness probably by wild beasts. They don't know. They just send it out and say, adios, scapegoat. They certainly hope that it doesn't come back in the t- into the gate. So they're going to lead it far enough that it's not going to do that. And then Leviticus uh, 16.30. For on this day of atonement shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. Okay, so this is just this big day of atonement for God's people. The sins of the previous year are forgiven by God. Why? Why are they forgiven? Well, because they've been laid on this scapegoat. That's where we get that term, scapegoat. They've been laid on this innocent victim, This innocent and weak goat then carries the burden of all the people. He's led outside the city gate to die. And by this goat's sacrifice, the people's sin is forgiven. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound at all related to what Christ does for us? Let me ask you an interesting question. Was the sacrifice offered on the Day of Atonement or any other atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament were these the means by which God's people's sin was atoned for? Let me ask you. I, I, I want to phrase this as simply as possible. That goat, sins laid on him, walking out of the gate, were the people's sins atoned for by that goat? Was that goat the means of atonement for God's people? No, a resounding no. I would say, well, God says it is, so yeah. But not completely, not fully, which is why I say, Proposition 2, Christ has to die to provide complete atonement. Hebrews 10, 3 through 4, y'all must have looked ahead. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
You imagine if you whispered that to Aaron as he's laying his hands on the goat, all of our sins. Hey, man, it's impossible for those to take away sins. He's like, what are we doing here? What does this even mean? Isaiah 1.11 says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Well, then why all of these sacrifices? Why is Aaron putting his hands on a, on a goat and saying, okay, there go our sins? Why is all of this happening? Here's what I'll say. These sacrifices were never actually meant to be the means of atonement, but rather were demonstrations of faith in God's provision for the means of atonement. These sacrifices were never the means of atonement, but rather a symbol, a demonstration of faith that God will provide the means of atonement. God will provide it. Knowing the blood of bulls doesn't, that, the blood of a, of a goat, that's not going to do anything for my sins. That's like Kelsey and I have this home warranty, and it's actually really good, but we're trying to compare it to other home warranty things. So that's kind of where, like, when your dishwasher breaks, someone will fix it really cheap if you're just, you're just too lazy to deal with it. Uh, and so I guess that's me. I'm really lazy. <laughs> and so I was looking at other home warranties, and there was one out there that said uh, it, was, it was really expensive, and it said, we will cover your new roof up to $1,000. thought, that is not enough. That's nowhere close. And that's what the blood of bulls and the blood of this goat, that's what it's like. It's like saying, this pays for my sins up to $1,000. <laughs> nope, not going to cut it. That's not going to come anywhere close. The blood of animals was never the means. Rather, as the people sacrificed the blood of the innocent each year, they reminded that they were guilty each year. It was a reminder of sins every year. They were reminded that we're just these sin factories that constantly produce sin. We constantly incline, our hearts are inclined towards unrighteousness, not righteousness. We're, we're bad fruit trees that produce bad fruit. We're mesquite trees, and we produce mesquite beans, which are useless. We can't produce peaches. Do you understand what I'm saying? You with me? So no matter what they do, they can't somehow, the people of Israel can't somehow earn atonement through these, these, the blood of bulls and, the, and the, all their sins being laid on this goat. The blood of bulls and goats is not somehow like God's kryptonite. He's like, oh, man, I didn't know there was the blood of a sheep involved. Sure, y'all are good. That'll take care of it. That's not how it works. Instead, these sacrifices just put on full display the mercy of God in his provision of atonement. God provides it. They don't. The animals don't provide it. God does in his mercy. This is the consistent theme of sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. So, for instance, do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham, he's got this promise from God, through your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so then he has his son, Isaac, his, his firstborn, but it's not really his firstborn. But for the biblical argument, it is his firstborn because that's through whom this promise will go. And so God tells Abraham, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham says, okay which is crazy. And he like waits three days or something. So that's grueling if you're a parent, if you could imagine that. He tells, he's got these young men. He says, hey, young men, y'all stay here. Me and the boy are going to go worship up on the mountain. You're like, oh, man, this is awkward to read. This is awful. And this, this is one of the craziest little text exchanges from a father and son in Genesis 22:7. Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. 
And Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Oh, that is a dagger to the heart, not like the one Isaac thinks he's getting. It's awful. That's a tense situation. Here's what Abraham says to Isaac. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God said, sacrifice your firstborn, this offspring. Sacrifice the offspring of Abraham. You know all these promises that we talked about when we were talking about covenants? They come to the offspring of Abraham. He says, sacrifice the offspring of Abraham. Abraham says, okay. And Isaac's walking up there. Where's the, where's the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. You see how that points forward to the person of Jesus? Abraham's offspring would indeed serve as the sacrifice, but God would provide the sacrifice. Joseph did not provide Mary with a son. God did. So the burnt offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings, they simply profess faith in that future, that future atoning sacrifice in the person of Jesus. I want to talk about one more, one more sacrifice, the Passover lamb. This is another one brought up a lot in the New Testament, basically in Egypt. Before the Israelites were going to leave, their great exodus, God tells them to like fast for a week, and then he says for them to sacrifice a spotless, about year-old lamb. Sacrifice the lamb and take its blood and put it on your door frame. Because, as God says, the destroyer is going to come through Egypt and slaughter the firstborn of anyone who is not covered by the blood of the lamb. Just going to kill the firstborn, of the offspring of anyone who is not covered by the blood of the lamb. And so as, as a firstborn in that family, you understand this sacrifice that was supposed to, I was supposed to be the one that died, has been covered by this spotless, innocent, young male lamb. Because of that lamb's blood, my blood is spared. Because this innocent lamb died, I'm covered by his blood, therefore I live. You see how these are all pointing forward. These are shadows pointing forward to Christ's fulfillment in his death. So here's why I'm talking about all these sacrifices. Jesus steps on the scene, and John the Baptist says this of him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is a line that references both, both the Passover lamb and the Day of Atonement, takes away the sins of the world. If someone calls you that your first day of work, you like walk into work, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you should be like, don't kill me. Someone's trying to kill me. That should have been Jesus' response. But he, no, he faithfully knows. He knows what he is about to endure. He knows what he's about to suffer. He knows what he's come to fulfill. He's not unaware. And that's what John the Parkway Baptist is saying. This is why Jesus is also called the Lamb throughout Revelation. Jesus is the Lamb who takes away our sin once and for all. He's the scapegoat. He's the Passover Lamb. He is the offspring of Abraham. Hebrews 13, 11 through 12 says, For the bodies of those animals, talking about those who are sacrificed, specifically those on the Day of Atonement, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as the sacrifice for sin, the, the bodies of these animals is burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And then Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In Christ's death, the faith of the Old Testament saints is realized. Their sins are fully atoned for in Christ. Christ's sacrifice pays the debt of sin once and for all. Our relationship to God is restored in a way that the blood of bulls or the blood of goats or the blood of lambs or the blood of rams never could. Only through Christ's single sacrifice. So I say all of this just to make the point. The Old Testament sacrifices were ordained by God to point to his future provision of the means of atonement. Blood of goats did not atone. Christ atoned completely, fully. God's son is the one who fulfills and completes this atonement so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's a lot more I could say about this, but I don't have time. And thankfully, Zach is talking all about atonement next week. He's going to go through all the different facets of atonement, all the different theories around atonement. So make sure you come to that and get here on time. Get ready, because Zach will have like four Red Bulls, and he'll be ready to go, okay? Proposition three, Christ's death displays the character of God. This one's, this one's a fun one. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's what he's saying. We preach Christ crucified. And what does that, what does that preach? That preaches the power of God and that preaches the wisdom of God. When you see Christ crucified, you are seeing with your eyes Christ You've seen the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then Romans 5, 6 through 8. We went through this a couple weeks ago in the sermon. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death shows, displays the character of God. It displays his love that he would die even while we were sinners. How many of you were born when Christ died? Dave Young, who's not here, probably was, but everybody else, no. None of us were alive. And yet his sacrifice, when he died, God shows his love for us while we were still sinners, not even born sinners. Christ died for us. So when you think of power in general, what do you think of? What I unfortunately think of, and this is because of poor shepherding as a youth in in church, as a young, uh, you know, malleable soul in church, I had this thing, we had the power team, which was cool in the 80s and 90s. The power team. We're ripping phone books for God. That's kind of their whole stick. There were these, and the staff guys uh, know a guy that used to be a part of the power team, and I'm sure he could beat me up with his deflated whey protein muscles, but... That was, the, that was my understanding of power. And unfortunately, to this day, when I hear someone talk about like power, I'll be watching a football game, they're like, look at the power of this running back. I think of the power team like bending a frying pan. It's the worst. I could do all things through Christ. 
you know, they'd rip. It, was, it, was a weird, it was a weird thing. If you have no idea what I'm talking about and you think I'm weird, just know that you're seeing them vicariously through me, okay? Maybe when you think of power, you think of the ability to control. That's what I would really love. I would like for people just to listen to whatever I say and for the world to just kind of work the way that I want it to work and for, to have the power to make them stop building stoplights on Virginia or just stop construction on Virginia altogether. Someday, I want that sort of power, to be able to control others, to manipulate the universe to be the way that I would like it to be for my own comfort. Or you think about wisdom. What do you think about wisdom? What is wisdom in your imagination? If I had more wisdom, what would I do with it? I'll tell you. I would invest it well, invest money well, I'd make a bunch of cash. I'd build a nice custom house on a big plot of land. I'd probably have more guitars than I need. I would just spend it on myself. I would use my wisdom so that I could just build up stuff for myself and enjoy it. I probably wouldn't have as hard of a time teaching a class or preparing to teach a class on the death of Christ if I had a little more wisdom. So I want more wisdom. Or what do you think about when you think of love? If I had been a more loving person all these years, what, what, what do you think that your life would look like? Oh, I'd have more friendships. I'd have more Facebook friends, for sure. They would all want to hear about my day when I post and I take selfies. They'll be like, girl, glad you're at the pool. I'd have all the friends. <laughs> what would your life look like? Where does your mind go? Oh, my family would want to spend time at my house more often. Oh, I'd have better relationships. I would still be connected with that old friend. My relationship with my kids would be so much better. They would all want to come to my house for the holidays. I just want to be liked by everyone. If I had more love, that's probably what I would get. I just want, I could just go on and on, but here's my point. When we think of power, when we think of wisdom, when we think of love, when we think of a lot of the attributes that are displayed uh, by Christ's death on the cross, if we imagined ourselves gaining any of those attributes, it always is self-serving. Always. If tomorrow you woke up with 50% more wisdom, 50% more power, who would it serve? Yourself. I don't know about you. That's how it works with me. I just want all the power for myself. Me, 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 me. Listen to Philippians 2, 4 through 8. <clears throat> Let each of you look not only to his own interests. It's okay to look to your own interests, but don't look only there, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ has all the power, all the wisdom, all the love, and yet he submits himself to die alone on a cross. He uses his wisdom to connect not with the wise, but with those who are seen as foolish. And he forgives the very people who wag their heads at him and shout, crucify him. When we think power and love and wisdom, we should picture a weak and rejected man pouring his life out on the cross for his enemies. Wounded and afflicted, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the power, the wisdom, the love of God. The cross displays powerfully the character of God. Christ possesses all authority in heaven and earth, 
And he wields that authority for the sake of his enemies. Christ demonstrates this better love, better wisdom, better power. And so, by the Spirit, we're called to do likewise. We're called to do likewise. We have the power, the the wisdom, the love of the Father by the Spirit. And so we're called to, with these gifts, love God and love our neighbor, to love our enemies. And this does not look like, culturally, what is best for us. Power is, is finding a way to get promoted by any means necessary so you can get out from under that annoying boss who's just over harping all the time. You can just get out from under their annoying leadership. Power is just getting promoted or getting a different job so you don't have to deal with that annoyance anymore. But what if you've been placed under that terrible supervisor to bless them, to serve them, to display the character of Christ, to display God's character? Wisdom, according to our world, is just making all the right financial decisions so that nothing bad ever happens and everything is taken care of and there's no pitfalls. You can just avoid all pitfalls. But what if the wisdom of God is to invite family members who are struggling into your home and now you're living paycheck by paycheck? Wisdom of the world says you should store up manna. But God has asked you to trust him with what he's giving you today. It's not always the wisest move. But we're called to display the character of God in our living. And love, this is a big one, is is never offending in our culture. So therefore, just don't preach the gospel. Don't offend. Oh, don't correct. That will hurt them too much. It'll hurt their self-esteem. But what if you're called to love and serve an unbelieving friend or a family member or a neighbor and you'll never see results? Just because you've never, you don't see results doesn't mean that that calling has gone away from you. What if you're called to continue to serve, to continue to be insulted, to continue to, to not be understood or to be misunderstood in your theology as you try to engage with your family member or your friend or your coworker or your neighbor or your child who's an unbeliever? But you're not responsible for their response. You're responsible for your action. You need to be faithful to what God has called you to. And so God invites us, like Christ did, to display the character of God, which looks like a weak, rejected man dying on a cross. The power, the love, the wisdom of God. The the character of God is radically others-oriented. And so the cross displays for us and invites us to do the same. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11 says, Consider him, think about him, remember him. Consider him, Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if the character of God was displayed on the cross, the Spirit, by discipline, teaches us to display the same character. And let me encourage you, it will not look pretty. When when we look on the cross, we think, this is terrible. 
We know that the cross happened, that this event happened, because with all the founders of all other world religions, you look at how they died. Muhammad says something super wise and peaceful. And Buddha says something when he dies, super wise and peaceful. Jesus is dying on a cross, suffering. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This crazy theological statement. And even critics, when they see that, they say, that must have happened, because that doesn't go well for this argument. That doesn't call people to go, okay, I want to worship that God. It doesn't do well for the, the advertising division of the gospel. It must have happened. But though darkness covers the land and Christ's death, and there's this earthquake even, everything seems awful, God is triumphing over death. He's working salvation for mankind. He's drawing enemies to himself through the vicarious death of Christ. He's displaying his power and wisdom. And so I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what darkness covers your life, what you're struggling with. And you think nothing good could possibly come from this. Listen, this is the power of God. That God is so powerful over evil that he uses what was meant for evil. He, he works all things for good to those who love him. That is the power of God. So you can, you can rest in this. This is not something that happens overnight. You're not going to wake up tomorrow thinking, well, now that I heard Tim say all that stuff, yeah, I'm super excited about all the suffering I'm enduring. That's not going to happen. You're not going to your, stub your toe and start being like, yes, Lord, joy be to you. That's not going to happen. Usually the people that do that are not being genuine. I don't know. I can't judge that, but that's, that's just strange. God will form you by his spirit into the image of the Son, but it takes time. All we have to worry about is putting our eyes on the cross, drawing our attention toward the cross and remembering the character of God displayed on the cross so we know that the character of God can be displayed in our hardship, as ugly as it looks, so that Christ may be glorified and other, others might be united with him. I say all this just to say, Christ died so that we might have life. Therefore, may we die that our neighbor, our spouse, our child, our coworker, our students, our enemies may also have life. Proposition four. Uh, in the same way that uh, Zach talked, us, talked about us uh, being united with Christ in his life, we're also united with Christ in his death. And so we'll end here because this is the hardest aspect of the doctrine of the death of Christ for us to grasp. This really is. So I'm going to read Romans 6, 1 through 7, uh, which they're actually going to be in next week as we preach. So you, you, I don't know. Maybe they don't have to preach next week. I'll just do it all right now. I'm just kidding. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, so who died to sin? Who died to sin? We did. But I thought Christ died. This says you did. You go, oh, I'm pretty sure I didn't die. I think the Bible has more authority than you. We, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free 
from sin. Okay, before all of you, y'all are all scoffing. Free from sin? Are you kidding? I'm not free from sin. I feel no freedom from from sin. If you're honest with yourself, when I read that passage, that's what I say. I go, free from sin? No, I don't. I don't experience that at all. And Paul is not arguing that you're free from the presence of sin. That's not what he's arguing. People are still going to commit sins against you. The effects of sin, you're still going to feel these repercussions of sin. You yourself will still commit sin. But you no longer have to. You don't have to. See, when you, were, when you were born, this was your only choice. You were born into sin. You were conceived into sin. There was nothing in you that wanted to do anything other than sin. So whenever you think of like the famous 1986 film Crossroads, where the guy sells his soul to the devil to become a better guitar player, if you try to sell your soul to the devil to become an amazing guitar player, he'll simply say, your soul is already mine. I already own it. But on the other hand, if you sell your soul to the devil in order to become a better French horn player, he'll just say, no thanks, not interested. (laughs) Sin is all you've ever wanted since birth. But that self has been crucified. That self has died. That self was buried with Christ. Do you bury alive people? If you do, they're dead pretty soon. So the fact that Christ was buried means he was dead, surely, and so were you. You've died. You were buried with Christ. So if you're a believer, which is what Paul means when he references baptism, a believer has been given this new life in Christ by the Spirit who enables us to live not as slaves to sin, but as slaves to righteousness. So I just want to draw this home real quick because many of us are paralyzed in our faith because of this burden of sin. We don't live like people who have died to sin. So let me give some examples. When you set aside time to pray, does your mind flood with reminders of your many sins? Just all of a sudden. You're filled with remembrance how terrible of a person you are. Are you distracted and burdened by guilt, condemnation, and your many shortcomings? Do you begin to dwell on how you don't pray enough? Or even when you do pray, you don't pray correctly or about the right things or for long enough? Well, I have this one friend that prays for an hour, and I am distracted after four minutes. You begin to just feel this condemnation. Or when you interact with others, whether it's your family or your friends or people in your community group, are you, are you trying to overcompensate for your sin? Are you so aware of your sin that you're trying to just appear like, oh, no one's as bad as me, so I'm just going to make it look like everything's normal. You go around the room, you confess sin, you go, I struggle with insecurity. And that may be a great confession, but are you are overcompensating, trying to say, I'm, I'm pretty good. I commit the right amount of sin for a Christian to commit. Don't worry about me. I'm good. Do you carry this weight that just says you're so much worse than everyone else? Or are you angry with everyone else? Because they don't seem to have as bad of a, of a job or as hard of a time not sinning as you do. You're just angry with everyone else. The guilt of your sin is so unbearable, you just start blaming other people. Oh, they're just, they're just inauthentic. They're just, oh, that person's so fake. Because you're just trying to do everything that you can do to get a leg up on your guilt. You're just trying to say, oh, they're sinning. Everyone else is sinning. Oh, and I can't. I end up looking like I'm not authentic. No, my, my confession is, is real and true and pure and whole. They're just trying. They're just not being. They're just being so faked, and they're acting like everything's okay. I know it's not. It can't be. My life's awful. It can't be better than my life. And so you're trying to get this leg up on everyone else's sin, and you're angry and bitter. If you can demonstrate that everyone else is sinning, then that somehow relieves enough guilt 
to kind of keep your habit going. And so I, I say all of that. Here's Paul's point. When Christ died, you died. And sin was no longer your master. You've been freed, from Christ, for, you've been freed in Christ's death from sin, guilt, and condemnation. So, therefore, stop allowing guilt, stop allowing condemnation, stop allowing sin to dictate how you live your life in Christ. You've been risen to new life in Christ. Stop letting the old master call the shots. He has no authority over you. Why? Because you died. When you die, your master has no authority over you because well, you're just dead. The example Jesus gives from Matthew 18, there's this man who owes a king a great debt. We've all heard this story. This man owes this king like a bajillion dollars. And the king goes to him and says, hey, man, where's my money? Guy goes, I don't have it. I'm so sorry. And the king goes, your debt's forgiven. Like a bajillion dollars. And then the man goes out, and he finds this servant who owes him like five bucks. And he says, where's my money? And the servant goes, I don't have it. And he starts strangling the guy. The king comes to him and says, you wicked and evil servant. I forgave you this infinite death, and yet somehow it did not change the way you live so that you're strangling a guy for $5. This is Paul's point. If you've died with Christ, live like it. What do you, what do you, let your mind be renewed by looking at the cross, seeing that Christ was condemned, so you're not. Therefore, you don't have to be shouting condemnation at everybody else to somehow make up for the condemnation you feel. Christ carried your guilt and your burdens, so you don't have to. All of you, look at me. God is not mad at you. Why? Because you died with Christ. You're in Christ. Rather, Christian, he cherishes you. He welcomes you to his lap like a father who loves his son dearly. We, we, we tend to approach the throne with such timidity. I do this all the time, but Hebrew... Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is why we pray at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name, amen. Because we are in Christ. We're not appearing before God ourselves in our own filthiness. No, that person died. Now we've been, that person's been crucified. We are in Christ. And so we are sons and daughters of the King. And he loves you. Christ paid your guilt and shame on the cross, and you died with him. That guilt and shame never to rise again. You've been raised to newness of life, so we can rest in that freedom. I pray that that's encouraging this morning. Remember what Christ has done in his death, and approach God, therefore, as a beloved child would approach his or her loving father with confidence. That, as Jesus said, as he died on the cross, it is finished. That old person is dead. You're dead to sin. You have a new master. So rest in that freedom. Amen? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to walk through some, uh, some questions with old Zachary. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this good news of your gospel. I pray, Lord, that we would, you would form us into the image of Christ. That we would be people that forgive. We would be people that uh, rejoice. That we would be people that, as we suffer, uh, we, would, we would see the hope in our suffering and we would recognize that uh, you, you discipline those whom you love. Pray, Lord, that uh, we would lean into the freedom that we've been given in the gospel and this death of Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray all of this. Amen.